The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Medicine in Motion, Smart Approaches for Treating HOFH. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash BNB860. Downloadable additional resources are also available. Hello, this is Seth Martin from Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Welcome to this visual tour of the latest in treatment for HOFH. Strong evidence shows that elevated LDL cholesterol levels are a major risk factor for cardiovascular disease, and reducing LDL cholesterol levels may prevent cardiovascular disease. Importantly, this risk for cardiovascular disease is a function of the cumulative LDL cholesterol burden, that is, the magnitude of the LDL elevation multiplied by the number of years of exposure. Therefore, it's important to get LDL as low as possible for as long as possible to prevent cardiovascular disease. So we see in this visual on the x-axis age and on the y-axis cumulative LDL cholesterol burden. And so, for example, shown here in the figure of 575 milligrams per deciliter, even in the first decade of life, there's a huge cumulative exposure to LDL such that that burden crosses the threshold for manifestation of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. So let's take a look at current strategies for treating individuals with HOFH. Keep in mind that combination lipid-lowering therapy is common and necessary for people with HOFH. And as we add medications to intensify lipid-lowering therapy, these are the goals or LDL thresholds that we're using to guide our therapy to optimize LDL. So the clinical approach to patients with HOFH is guided by the presence or absence of ASCVD. In adult patients who do not have established ASCVD, we're looking to lower LDL below 100. In those who have ASCVD, Traditionally, we've looked to get LDL below 70, but these days, preferably, we get it below 55 if that's possible. And then in the pediatric population, we are looking to get LDL below 130. However, if a pediatric patient had ASCVD, of course, we'd be looking to go lower. So we start with maximally tolerated high-intensity statin therapy in addition to optimal lifestyle habits. And then we expect to add azetamide to high-intensity statin therapy because really we're looking to have combination lipid-lowering therapy in a patient with ASCVD. But how well does a statin and azetamide reduce LDL cholesterol levels in this patient population? So even at high-intensity statin therapy, we get a modest response in LDL of about 28% in the HOFH population with statin therapy, and then approximately a 20% lowering with azetamide. And if we intensify further, say with bempidoic acid and PCSK9 inhibitor, how well does that work? So we expect with those therapies added on to the statin azetamide, another 20% lowering from each therapy. And so we're clearly much better off than we were at baseline, but still there's a need for additional LDL lowering. It's worth noting with respect to PCSK9 inhibitor therapy that evolocumab is approved for adults and pediatric patients age 10 and above, and alarocumab and enclizaran are currently approved for adults only. So if we find that there's no response to PCSK9 inhibitor, which could be the case, particularly if the LDL's really knocked out with a null mutation, then we can use agents that function independently of the LDL receptor. Or even if we get a partial response to the PCSK9 inhibitor, but LDL is still not optimized, like you'll see with Brandy and Patricia, then we have the option to add evanicumab. So 
with evanicumab, we can get about a 50% lowering of LDL cholesterol levels. And then lamidipide is another option, which also can provide that halving of LDL cholesterol levels. By comparison, we can look at these results for the heterozygous FH population. So in contrast, the heterozygous FH population is starting at much lower LDL levels, so not up around 600, but around 200, and then has a larger response to statin therapy of about 50% with high-intensity statin therapy, which together with azetamide, bempidoic acid, and PCSK9 targeting medications can get LDL down to optimal levels in many heterozygous patients. So it's really a difference of starting at a lower level and also having somewhat increased response to therapy. So the HOFH care pathway is really a stepwise escalation of evidence-based pharmacologic therapy, starting with statins and azetamide in addition to a healthy lifestyle through PCSK9 inhibitors and bempidoic acid to treatments that work independently of the LDL receptor, including lamidipide and evanicumab. And then there's also lipoprotein apheresis, which has been available as a great option for FH patients that do not meet their LDL goals with pharmacotherapy. So there's commonly a need for prior authorization with some of these more advanced therapies, given their access is restricted through payers based on their costs. The Family Heart Foundation Insurance Navigation Guide is really a great resource when navigating these issues with patients' insurance companies. So the next section is about understanding how HOFH treatments work. These treatments, as we've discussed, largely do depend on functioning of LDL receptors, the classic therapies, including statins and azetamide and PCSK9 monoclonal antibodies, and now PCSK9 siRNA therapy, as well as bempidoic acid. So let's review a little so you have a better understanding of how the mechanisms of actions differ among lipid-lowering therapies. Most LDL cholesterol is produced endogenously, but some comes from food. The liver regulates LDL cholesterol production and metabolism via LDL receptors. The clearance of LDL cholesterol through those LDL receptors is really critical to determining its levels. And all of these agents depend upon functioning of LDL receptors when we're talking about the classic agents including statins, azetamide, and more recently, bempidoic acid and clizuran, evolucumab, and alarocumab. So we'd like to just dive into the functioning here a little bit more. Here in the visual, we see LDL receptors on the surface of the liver, and those grab LDLs. They're like garbage trucks that take the LDLs out of the circulation. And those LDL receptors get tagged for degradation, and PCSK9 helps accelerate that process. It helps tag the LDL receptors for degradation. So inhibitors such as evolucumab and alarocumab, they block that degradation by taking PCSK9 off from tagging the LDL receptors for that degradation. So that allows more LDL receptor recycling, more garbage trucks to grab the LDLs out of the bloodstream. In clizuran, in contrast, which is an siRNA against PCSK9, actually blocks the synthesis. So the actual pool 
of PCSK9, we're kind of turning off that faucet that's producing the PCSK9 protein. Ezetimide, it blocks uh, cholesterol absorption in the gut, but ultimately that then leads to upregulation of LDL receptors as a key mechanism of action for ezetimide. So it really does have still typically a dependence on the LDL receptor. And then although statins and bempidoic acid work by blocking cholesterol synthesis, really the large effect of statins and bempidoic acid is by then upregulating LDL receptors in response to that decrease in cholesterol synthesis, which is why an HOFH patient could have a blunted response because there's still that dependence on LDL receptors. So lipid-lowering treatments that do not depend on the functioning of LDL receptors include lamidipide, evanicumab, and apheresis. More rarely, there's liver transplant, where you actually get new receptors associated with the transplanted liver. And as you'll hear about in one of our patients, there in the past was a procedure, ileal bypass, that was done for treatment of homozygous FH. These treatments are now quite uncommon, particularly with the advanced therapies that we now have. Here are the lipid-lowering agents that do not depend upon functioning of LDL receptors. So we have lamidipide, which blocks VLDL particle assembly, and that's upstream of LDL. So we ultimately are reducing LDL by blocking VLDL secretion from the liver. And then we have evanicumab, which works as an ANG-PTL3 inhibitor. And we're going to dive more into the mechanism of action here, which relates to lipoprotein lipase and endothelial lipase. So let's explore this a little further with a 3D animation. Patients with HOFH typically have insufficient responses to most recommended lipid-lowering therapies, such as statins, azetamide, bempidoic acid, and PCSK9-targeting agents, which depend directly or indirectly on functioning LDL receptors. Because their LDL receptors work ineffectively, are few in number, or are completely absent, patients with HOFH need lipid-lowering treatments that work independently of the LDL receptor. The body generates and utilizes varying sizes and densities of lipoproteins. Less dense lipoproteins, like LDL, are atherogenic, but increasing evidence supports that triglyceride-rich lipoproteins, such as intermediate-density lipoprotein, or IDL, and very large low-density lipoprotein, or VLDL, may also be strongly associated with atherosclerotic risk. Although the exact mechanisms are still being investigated, Angiopoietin-like 3, or ANG-PTL3, a glycoprotein produced by the liver, regulates hepatic secretion of triglyceride-rich lipoproteins. Irrespective of the LDL receptor, ANG-PTL3 suppresses lipoprotein lipase, or LPL, and endothelial lipase, or EL, which are central mechanisms for clearing triglyceride-rich lipoproteins from the circulation. Evanocumab is a fully human monoclonal antibody that inhibits ANG-PTL3, thereby increasing LPL activity. This promotes triglyceride hydrolysis of VLDL, leading to reduced production and increased clearance of LDLC. In patients with HOFH without functioning LDL receptors, especially those with null-null mutations, inhibiting ANG-PTL3 appears to reduce LDLC through EL activity. This remodels VLDL, resulting in remnant particles that are rapidly cleared and depletion of LDLC precursors. Consequently, evanocumab can reduce LDLC by about 50% in patients with HOFH. Now let's explore the topic of individualizing treatment of HOFH. 
So treatment algorithms are very helpful for summarizing general recommendations and reasonable courses of action. We're certainly expecting to need, as was iterated before, combination lipid-lowering therapy for HOFH. But treating HOFH requires a lifetime of commitment and partnering with patients to individualize their treatment. This is really imperative to ensure the best possible long-term outcomes. In the diagnostic companion activity, we met Patricia and Brandy, two of my patients with HOFH who I'm very fortunate to get to know and get to work with. And like so many people with HOFH, Patricia and Brandy have encountered a number of barriers to and limitations associated with lipid-lowering treatment. And as partners in their healthcare, it's our job to identify how we can overcome these barriers so they can have the best outcome. So let's talk about Patricia. She's a 67-year-old woman with HOFH. Quite remarkable to have lived to this age with HOFH, especially given the limited treatment options when she was younger. So she's been really living through the advancements of treatments over the decades and has gone on a variety of lipid medicines over the years as they've become available, along with having ileal bypass surgery in childhood. So starting out her total cholesterol levels and LDL levels were somewhere approaching 1,000. And then she had ileal bypass procedure, which brought those down to a little over 600. In the years after that, in the 1970s, she started on clofibrate and probucol. She then later went on bile acid sequestrant therapy and niacin. There were some temporary pauses in treatment due to side effects, but she was on these for a number of years. And then in the 1980s, she was started on lovastatin when it came to the market and then was started on apheresis. She later was switched when high-intensity statin therapy became available to atorvastatin and really did well for a number of years, as well as could be achieved with high-intensity statin therapy with atorvastatin and LDL apheresis. It's a little unclear why she wasn't on azetamide, although she was post-ileal bypass, which could reduce the effectiveness of azetamide, but was started on azetamide and then PCSK9 inhibitor evolucumab as soon as it became available. Later, due to an insurance switch, she was actually switched from evolucumab to alarocumab. And this was all around the time that she was unable to continue with lipoprotein apheresis due to vascular access issues. And so then this was a really great time for her to switch to evolucumab as a newly approved therapy. Now with the addition of evanicumab to the high-intensity statin therapy, azetamide, PCSK9 inhibitor, plus the prior ileal bypass and her attentiveness to her lifestyle. With this addition of evanicumab, she's now gotten her LDL levels down into the 50s. So we're really pleased with that. In order to get the approval of evanicumab, this did require repeated genetic testing. We believe that she had genetic testing many years ago, but it was difficult to track down as it was performed at another medical center. So as part of the appeal process for her evanicumab, we needed to repeat that genetic testing in addition to her clinical diagnosis of HOFH to prove genetically that she has HOFH. So here's some of the powerful messages that Patricia has shared about her treatment journey. It's been a real honor and pleasure to work with her as we've addressed her needs in an individualized fashion. I've really worked hard to listen to her and partner with her using shared decision-making to individualize her treatment goals and attain those goals. So we've really optimized her LDL management at this point.
And so in addition to her lipid management, we've also worked to address her holistic care, including weight loss. And then she's also brought up to me some mild memory issues at her age with a history of such exposure to LDL levels. We need to be considering that vascular dementia could occur. And so to address that most recently, I have referred her to our neurology memory clinic to make sure that we're being very proactive in addressing any memory issues as best as we can. And of course, her AS CVD treatment to address her vascular health is part of our approach. And then she also has had some issues with sleep, the potential for sleep apnea, and I've most recently referred her to sleep clinic. So we're really optimizing her lipid management while paying attention to other key aspects of her health. So let's talk about Brandy, a 38-year-old woman with HOFH. It's been a pleasure to work with Brandy. We found that she has pathogenic mutations in the LDL receptor, one mutation from each parent, and her baseline LDL levels were around 600. She's also been found to have multi-vessel coronary artery disease by coronary CTA, and she has a history of TIA. So she's been treated with a high-intensity statin. The dose has been adjusted over time, but currently on high-intensity statin therapy, along with azetamide, a PCSK9 inhibitor. And with these three therapies, she's had an LDL in the mid-150s. This really was obviously a big improvement over 600, but still not quite where we wanted to get her because our goal is less than 100 in general. And given that we have multi-vessel coronary artery disease, we'd really like to get her considerably lower in an ideal world below 55. This was before before bempidoic acid was available on the market, we made the shared decision to initiate lipoprotein apheresis, and her insurance approval was fairly straightforward. We did do a prior authorization, but it went through smoothly without any need for an appeal. We were happy to get her started on lipoprotein apheresis. She had an excellent response to lipoprotein apheresis with post-apheresis LDL levels in the 40s. At one point in her treatment course, there was some concern for statin-associated side effects, and so her resuvastatin dose was decreased to 5 milligrams, and the frequency of apheresis was then increased in response to that, and we were able to keep her LDL levels quite controlled. Subsequently, as she and I dove into the possibility of statin-associated side effects, it became less clear that there was truly a side effect and we were able to gradually increase the dose back up to 40 milligrams daily. And she was then able to space out the lipoprotein apheresis treatments to every four weeks, which was quite helpful because she was traveling a considerable distance to have the treatments done and taking off time from work to do so. So although she was doing really well with lipoprotein apheresis, when Evanicumab was approved, she came into clinic and we had a conversation about it. And she was really interested in shifting to evanicumab with the goal of preserving her long-term vascular access with the greater convenience of home infusion and also the durability of the LDL cholesterol lowering effect versus the peaks and valleys that we get with lipoprotein apheresis, where although she was getting LDL levels in the 40s after lipoprotein apheresis, it was drifting up between sessions. And so her cumulative average LDL was still not necessarily optimal. So we pursued prior authorization with her insurance for evanicumab, and this actually went quite smoothly. It went through on the first time without need for an appeal letter. She added evanicumab to resuvastatin 40, along with azetamide 10, and she was now on alarocumab 150 milligrams every two weeks. And her LDL has consistently been in the low 40s. Her latest level was 44 milligrams per deciliter. So this is below our ideal goal of less than 55. 
At times, Brandy has experienced chest pain, which we addressed with coronary CTA scans. And these have shown mild to moderate diffuse coronary atherosclerosis. This is actually the aspect of her care that has required appeal letters to her insurance company to be able to obtain the scan, but it's been very helpful in clarifying her burden of coronary atherosclerosis and helping assess her chest pain. Fortunately, in the most recent times, Brandy's doing really well. She's free of any chest pain, so we're really pleased about that. Also, interestingly, Brandy was able to shift to remote work during the pandemic, which has helped her to further improve her lifestyle. It was quite stressful to be traveling long distances for work before the pandemic, and this was impeding our ability to achieve optimal results in terms of her HOFH treatment. So I've written letters on her behalf advocating for her for optimal work conditions. And when I meet with her now, it's clear how much better she's doing in terms of her lifestyle habits, her mental health, as well as her treatment success with her HOFH therapies. So here's some of the powerful messages about her treatment journey. So when individualizing treatment for HOFH, what are some of the things we need to consider as we help patients personalize their treatment regimen so it aligns well with their needs and preferences? So lipoprotein apheresis, lamidipide, and evanicumab. So lipoprotein apheresis is in clinic. It's two to four times monthly, and that can be modified over time depending on how someone's doing, as we saw in Brandy's case. It can be initiated even at very early ages. It's very well tolerated. The adverse events occur in about 1% of treatments, and these can include chest pain, hypotension, anaphylaxis, or clotting of the circuit. And there's no really major contraindication such as pregnancy. It can be used during pregnancy. In contrast, lamidipide is an oral therapy, which is taken once daily, and this is at least two hours after an evening meal. It can be initiated at an early age, but there's no dedicated pediatric trials. It does have a box warning against its hepatotoxicity, which leads to greater threshold sometimes to use this therapy compared to other pharmacotherapies. The common adverse events include 28% or more with GI symptoms such as diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, dyspepsia, or abdominal pain. And it is contraindicated in pregnancy as well as with CYP3A4 inhibitors and liver disease. Evanicumab 
in contrast, is an IV infusion. And this infusion, as we heard about in our patient cases, can be done at home. So it has that convenience of the home IV infusion, which is done monthly, and it's approved for age 12 years or older. And there's an application in for it to be approved for even younger ages in the future. Common adverse events occurring at least 5% of people include nasopharyngitis, dizziness, rhinorrhea, nausea, and it is contraindicated in pregnancy. For my two patients, it's been very well tolerated and has led to excellent LDL cholesterol results. So here are some key takeaways for us. So strong evidence shows that elevated LDL cholesterol is a major risk factor for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, and reducing the cumulative exposure to LDL levels is critical. People with HOFH typically have insufficient responses to most conventional lipid-lowering therapies, which are dependent on the LDL receptor. Even with combination lipid-lowering therapy, we still will have a need for additional LDL cholesterol lowering. And this is where LDL receptor-independent therapies come in and have been shown to have good efficacy in people with HOFH. Treatment algorithms are helpful in summarizing general recommendations and courses of action, but ultimately partnering with patients to individualize their treatment and to move to advanced therapies as needed is really critical to ensure the best possible long-term outcomes. So that ends our discussion for today. I hope you found this activity informative and useful to your practice, and I encourage you to participate, if you haven't done so already, in the companion module on HOFH diagnosis. Thank you very much for participating. This activity is certified by Penn State College of Medicine. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partners, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education, and Family Heart Foundation. Remember to download the additional resources. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash BNB860. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated.